Welcome to Write Up Your Algae, a podcast about wildlife, ecology, and environmental research. Whether it is old or new discoveries in these fields or opportunities to explore, this podcast aims to make information available for all. Sometimes looking for information in scientific literature or the public domain can be tricky to sift through, and the jargon is jarring. But our mission is to cipher that information and deliver it in a more digestible way. I am your co-host, Clara, and I am currently working on my bachelor's degree with honors in environmental science in Nova Scotia. And my name's Emily, and I'm a biology student. First, I just want to say welcome to the first episode. We're really excited to get started, and this has been an idea of ours for quite some time. Even so, I just want to start with a little disclaimer by saying we are new to the podcasting scene. As this is our first episode, there might be some technical issues, but bear with us. I am by no means good with technology, but hopefully that won't impede on the information getting through. Also, we have spent a lot of time researching these topics. However, we are not experts in any means of the word. If there's anyone who knows more about these topics or is an expert, please don't hesitate to send us an email and we will do a correction in the next episode. You can contact us at ruyapodcast at outlook.com. That's ruyapodcast at outlook.com. And this information will be posted in the description of each episode. So let's get started. (laughs) Since the name of our podcast is Right Up Your Algae, I wanted to start by talking about algae. Although this is a vague term as it describes many photosynthetic organisms. And I kind of just want to give you a rundown of what we're going to be going over this episode. So first I'll be talking about what algae are and then some interesting evolutionary information. Then I will dive in to current research on micro and macro algae biochar and its uses for bioremediation. If you don't know what these terms mean, hang on in there and I'll be explaining everything in the episode. And then I'll be ending the episode with a little quiz for Emily to test her knowledge on algae. Jesus Christ. (laughs) (laughs) Any questions before we get started? Many. (laughs) Well, hopefully I can answer these for you in the next like 30 minutes or so. So algae are from the kingdom protesta. They are eukaryotes, meaning they have a membrane bound nucleus, unlike bacteria. Therefore, they are more closely related to animals, plants, and fungi. Protesta come from the Greek word protestos, meaning the very first. Although these protists are generally unicellular, they can also form multicellular organisms. Protesta are one of the lower level organisms on the food chain, meaning they're one of the first to be consumed. Just before we start the next section, I did want to do a small correction. Um, As I was going back through the episode, I did realize that While some algae are classified in the kingdom Protesta, there's other algae that are classified in the kingdom Chromista. So that is a whole different kingdom in and of itself. And in our next episodes about algae, I will get into more of what the kingdom Chromista is. But I just wanted to put that in there so you know that I know that it's not only the kingdom Protesta that you might see algae. So now back to the episode. And algae can also take the role of a decomposer, meaning it breaks down materials in the environment, which can then be recycled through the ecosystem multiple times. Algae are typically found in aquatic environments, snow or moist conditions such as 
rocks and in, in soils. You might be familiar with some common algae like seaweed and kelp. Like plants, algae are photosynthetic, meaning that they obtain their energy from the sun. Although unlike plants, algae lack the structure of vascular tissue seen in plants, which is a structural type of tissue that helps plants to keep their shape. As with much of biology, there is conflicting evidence to support a particular classification system of algae. And so I'm going to go through three schools of thought with you guys. And I found these from the website Plantlet um, on a webpage titled The Classifications of Algae Comparing Three Schools of Thought. And then I cross-referenced that with the first chapter in Applied Algal Biotechnology from 2020. The first school of thought is by Bolden Wayne in 1985, and they split algae into 10 divisions. So I'm going to go and read off these names, but don't worry too much about them. There's a few that I'm going to point out that you're really going to need to know throughout the rest of the episode. So the first is Cyanophyta, which is a blue-green algae. The second is Prochlorophyta, which has one genus called Prochloron. Then you have Chlorophyta, which are green algae. Cherophyta, which are like stone warts or freshwater green algae. Euglenophyta, which have one flagella, and a flagella is kind of like a tail that helps with movement and locomotion. So you can kind of think of a tadpole and how it propels itself with its tail. Next, you have pheophyta, which is like a brown algae. You have cryosophyta, which is a golden and yellow-green algae. And then you have pyrophyta, or dinoflagellates. And dinoflagellates are endosymbionts, meaning that they are an organism that resides or lives within another organism. And we're going to talk a little bit about this later on in the episode. So just keep that in mind. And then you have cryptosophyta, which have two flagella, and then a red algae called rhodophyta. I just wanted to say a uh, big shout out to Clara for saying all of those really <laughs> big words correctly. Yeah, I am um, just take that how you say <laughs> Oh, I'm looking at Claire's notes right now, and I can see in brackets next to them the pronunciation of some of them. I think that that is, that's helpful. She still did a really good job. Yeah. So the second school of thought is Fritsch's in 1935, and it's broken into 11 categories, but I am not going to read through all those. I'm just going to point out one group that I think is particularly interesting, and they are the Bacillariophyceae which are also known as diatoms or yellow or golden brown algae. So the really cool thing about diatoms is they produce about 20 to 50% of the oxygen that we breathe, which is amazing because when we think of like where we obtain our oxygen, we think of like trees and actually the ocean is a big producer of oxygen for all living organisms. And also diatoms are encased in a silica, which is like glass. And anyways, they're super fascinating. The third school of thought is Robert Edward Lee, and he broke it down into four major divisions. So the first is a prokaryotic algae, and then he subdivided the eukaryotic algae into three groups. So eukaryotic algae with chloroplasts surrounded by only the two membranes of the chloroplast envelope, and the chloroplast envelope is regulating the inflow and outflow into and out of the chloroplasts. Then you have eukaryotic algae with chloroplasts surrounded by one membrane of chloroplast endoplasmic reticulum. An endoplasmic reticulum is a membrane where the protein synthesis occurs. The chloroplast endoplasmic reticulum 
makes protein specifically for the chloroplasts. And the last group is algae that have two membranes of chloroplast endoplasmic reticulum. Now I couldn't find for myself which classification system is most accepted, so that's why I told you all three. However, we'll probably do more episodes on algae and hopefully we can get someone who knows more about evolution and classification systems than I do because I'm kind of bad with that stuff. That is something really interesting if you are going to study biology that you will get into taxonomy and the methods that we use to separate different species, but it is so incredibly flawed and nobody has quite figured out the perfect system yet and I think Kingdom Protista is probably the greatest example of that. <laughs> yeah, that or fungi. Oh yeah, fungi too. <laughs> it's pretty bad, you guys. <laughs> Anyways, some algae can have mutualistic relationships with other organisms. And mutualism basically means a relationship in which both species benefit. For example, the first thing that pops into mind when I think about mutualistic relationships is lichen. And lichen is a relationship between algae and fungi. And you see lichen on trees, on rocks, lots of terrestrial environments. But another example of a mutualistic relationship with algae is the dinoflagellates that I talked about before and said, we're going to come back to it. Here it is. <laughs> and their relationship with modern day corals. So this relationship is more than 210 million years old, which is in the late Triassic period. And I just want to put that into perspective for people who don't know what the Triassic period is. So it was the time of our last supercontinent. And this means when all the continents were together and it was called Pangaea. It's also the first time that we see dinosaurs and mammals roam the earth. So a very, very, very long time ago. And these dinoflagellates play a critical role in the health of coral reefs. Algae living inside the tissues of these corals photosynthesize and transfer the nutrients to the coral cells. As the corals produce ammonium as a waste product, the algae that live inside the tissues can use this as nutrients. An article from Princeton University by Catherine Zandella, which references the paper Photosymbiosis and the Expansion of Shallow Water Corals, states that the corals with symbiosis can build the calcium carbonate skeleton 10 times faster compared to the corals that lack the symbiosis relationship with algae. So this mutualistic relationship adds a lot of benefits for both of them, just for nutrients, but also for defense and, and protection. And lastly, I kind of just wanted to dive into the reproduction strategies that are used in algae. So eukaryotic organisms, and this includes plants, animals, protesta, and fungi, use mitosis and meiosis. Now algae can use both meiosis and mitosis for reproduction. So Emily, can you tell me the difference between no. my <laughs> yes. Okay, so I took I have done this so many times <laughs> and every single time I'm like, okay, this one does it twice and then this one and then it then it goes back to the beginning. And yeah. So I'm just gonna kinda like dumb it down, uh, make it really simple. I'm not just for me. Just for Emily. <laughs> Nobody else, just Emily. So mitosis is when one cell divides into two cells and they have 100% of the genetic material needed. We are just replicating their cells. So you have a parent cell and two daughter cells. And this is a type of asexual reproduction used in algae. 
However, there are a few disadvantages to this type of reproduction, since you cannot increase the fitness and the genetic diversity of a species. Although it does mean that there can be rapid growth. An example that I found is that a species of giant kelp can grow up to 30 centimeters a day. And to put that into perspective, that is one ruler length a day. Holy smokes. Whoa. That's a lot of growth. (laughs) And then meiosis is when a cell splits its genetic material. And this genetic material can undergo lots of different types of rearrangements. And it produces four cells that contain half the genetic material present in the parent cell. So when two haploid cells, which are cells that contain half of the genetic material from the parent cell, come together, they form a new cell with 100% of its genetic material needed. And this is also known as a diploid cell. I think that I've kind of established, you can have an entire podcast about the biology of algae. It's very fascinating. Now that I've provided this background, I want to investigate biotechnological advances with algae. Are you ready? I sure am. Okay. But before we start, I need to define some terms for you guys. There's gonna More be, terms? Yes, there's going to be a lot of terms, and it's just going to be easier to say them all now and not describe them every single time. The first is biochar. I love biochar. Biochar is a byproduct of a process called pyrolysis, and pyrolysis takes an organic biomass, which is a certain quantity of an organic material, whether that be wood, sewage, manure, or algae, and it is placed in a container, which burns it in a little to no oxygen environment with high heat for a specific duration of time. It forms a material that resembles charcoal, so like that black material. And it is also used to sequester carbon. Carbon sequestration is a process where carbon is captured from either a plant or the atmosphere. There's many different techniques for carbon sequestration. And then it's stored so that carbon dioxide doesn't get into the atmosphere as fast. And we all know that carbon dioxide is one of those greenhouse gases that are responsible for climate change. So biochar is kind of a cool way to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide getting out each year. The second term is bioremediation, and bioremediation is the removal of pollutants, chemicals, and toxins from the environment. This process involves organisms for the removal uh, that include bacteria, fungi, microbes, and algae. The third is biosorption, and this is a mechanism that uses a biological material to absorb pollutants. So you can think of it like a sponge retaining all those pollutants inside. And this is important for removal of heavy metals, which are inorganic pollutants, and also organic pollutants that are carbon-based. The fourth is microalgae. And microalgae is a form of microscopic algae that is not visible to the naked eye. An example of this is phytoplankton. The last definition is macroalgae, and that is a form of multicellular algae that is visible to the naked eye. And an example of this is seaweed or kelp. Multiple studies use biochar made with algae to try and remove harmful pollutants in the environment. There have been multiple studies done analyzing bioremediation techniques with wastewater contamination, 
For example, a study conducted by Pu et al. in 2017, and they looked at removing heavy metals, including copper, cadmium, and zinc, using marine macroalgae biochar as an absorbent. The capacity of the marine macroalgae biochar to remove the metals in an aqueous environment, and aqueous just means like a liquid solution, is greater than that of their control, which was a wood-based biochar. And these heavy metals are commonly found in domestic wastewaters, and they are highly toxic. Therefore, it's important to find effective ways to clean up those toxins from the environment. And macroalgae are commonly used in industry, for example, in cosmetics and in food. And there's a lot of waste from these algae materials. So the conversion of those wasted algae materials into biochar may help to reduce the waste produced by these industries, the help with sequestration of carbon, and also help to absorb some of these common pollutants. And another study by Nguyen et al. in 2022, they looked at the use of marine algae biochar to absorb ciproflaxin, an antibiotic that in this case was in the aqueous form. Ciproflaxin is an antibiotic that cannot be fully absorbed by humans or animals, but it is still commonly used. So the residue of this antibiotic can be found in wastewaters. Once it is in wastewaters or in aquatic environments, they can cause adverse human health effects and harm the ecosystem. Bacteria in the aquatic ecosystem can perform horizontal gene transfer, which is a transferring of genes from one species to another, and build up a resistance to these antibiotics. Therefore, removing antibiotics from the ecosystem and waterways is important as it removes potential risk and harm to human health, and it helps to keep the same level of effectiveness of the antibiotic. In the study, they found that brown algae biochar was the most effective at absorbing the antibiotic compared to the green or red algae biochar. And they also found that these biochars could be reused multiple times to remove the antibiotics from water. And lastly, in a review by Can et al. in 2022, they looked at how microalgae biochar can be used to reduce the waste from industrial textile wastewaters. It's important to note that depending on the properties of the biochar, including if it's hydrophilic, which means water-loving, or hydrophobic, water hating, the pore size of the biochar, which is the space in the pore cavity. So think of the pores on your face and how they like get all grimy and stuff and then get pimples. So it's kind of like that in biochar. They have these like microscopic pores as well as the feedstock or the material that is used to create the biochar. Depending on whether biochar is used in agriculture, there's a whole other set of uh, conditions that it needs to fall under, but it's kind of different for remediation. Micro and macroalgae biochar both have different properties for absorbing some of these pollutants, even when they are produced under the exact same conditions. In the textile industry, cleaning up dyes, which are found in high concentrations in output, waters, or other waste products such as heavy metals, including zinc, cadmium, and arsenic that end up in our waterways can be totally ineffective and very expensive. These dyes and pollutants, both inorganic and organic, can reduce the light that enters the waterways, reducing the capacity for photosynthesis for both plants and algae. They can cause adverse human, marine, and wildlife health effects, such as mutagenic effects, chromosomal abnormalities, cancer, nervous, skeletal, 
endocrine and circulatory system harm, kidney disease, and premature death. Microalgae biochar, which is more commonly used in wastewaters for the textile industry, can be a highly effective biosorption technique for heavy metals and some types of microalgae biochar have also been shown to remove different dyes. A common saying in chemistry is, like dissolves like. So think of this when it comes to how this process works. The chemicals in the dye are attracted to the functional groups and the charges in the biochar and then they bind together. Therefore, they hold on to these dyes and prevent them from free flowing in the waterways. Again, the rate of removal of these chemicals depends on the concentration of the biochar being used for this biosorption. So the higher the concentration of the biochar applied in the waterways, the more chemicals there's gonna be removed. Although I have discussed the benefits of algae biochar, it is also important to note that this is a relatively new field and not a lot of work has been done in this field. Therefore, we need to take some things into consideration when we talk about biotechnology, such as including some of the issues and concerns. For example, the Con et al. 2022 article also stated that the cultivation step and the process of algae biochar at large scale will be complex and for such a large quantity needed, it will be difficult to produce it all. As well, to date, most of the research is done in small scale in the fields, and it's mostly performed in a controlled environment in the laboratory. Therefore, further insight in how to increase the scale of production is needed, but it just might be worth it due to how cost-effective and environmentally advantageous it is. That brings me to the end of our algae segment but now it's time for the next portion a little segment that i like to call the quiz pen <laughs> get it instead of a pig pen it's a quiz pen <laughs> anyways that is not a very good one claire we yeah. gotta find something so we're workshopping <laughs> so emily question Number one. We can't reveal to the listeners how stupid I am in the first it's, episode. It's okay. It's, no, it's fine. This is <laughs> this is random facts that I found online that I didn't include in the episode, but I thought would be super interesting, and I just kind of want to test your knowledge. The last question is the easiest. What is the oldest known red algae fossil? 1.2 billion years old, 900 million years old, 1.6 billion years old, or 700 million years old? 1.6. You are correct. So in a study by Stefan Bangston et al. in 2017, they discovered a 1.6 billion year old fossil in central India. They found this fossil in a rock formation from a shallow marine environment, or that was previously a shallow marine environment. And this discovery was made in a fossil with several other organisms, including the cyanobacterial biomats. A biomat is just like a mat of organisms. However, these differed from the cyanobacteria as they shared many attributes with the common day eukaryotic algae, specifically red algae. This also expanded the timeline of the last discovered oldest fossil of red algae, which was 1.2 billion years old, meaning that these organisms may have been more primitive than we previously believed them to be. So question two. Oh, oh. <laughs> what is the oldest known green algae fossil, the ancestor to the land plant? 
Okay. All right. 800 million years old, 1 billion years old, 1.4 billion years old, 864 million years old. 864. Sorry, Emily. <laughs> in a study conducted by Tang et al. in 2020, they discovered a 1 billion year old fossil of green algae. It's very old. <laughs> this discovery adds an additional 400 million years to the evolutionary timeline of green algae. Before this discovery, the oldest green algae fossil was 800 million years old. So my last question for you. Are cyanobacteria, which are also known as blue-green algae, actually an algae? That is a myth. No, they are not. That is correct. Cyanobacteria are prokaryotic, meaning that they do not have a membrane-bound nucleus, so their genetic material is kind of loose in the cell wall. However, cyanobacteria are photosynthetic, so that's pretty cool. A little safety lesson about cyanobacteria. If you, do, uh, if you don't know what it looks like, I would recommend looking it up because if it exists in your waterways, do not let your pet go for a swim. Do not go for a swim yourself. Don't drink the water. Don't drink the water. <laughs> Mexico. Have <laughs> <laughs> you seen that TikTok on you? <laughs> no. Sorry about that. I just completely fucked that up. <laughs> That's okay. But do report it to your local city council or whoever because... Cyanobacteria is very toxic, very bad for you. So please report it. A dog died in Halifax this summer. Yeah. What a sin. It was very sad. Very tragic. Okay. And before we end our very first episode, I also just wanted to talk about some potential careers when it comes to working with algae. There have recently been a lot of advancements in biotechnology and ways that algae can be used. So, for example, bioplastics, cosmetics, pharmaceuticals, energy production, agriculture, and of course, as we discussed, a bioremediation tool in wastewaters. Besides looking at industry, there are many other ways that you can look into a career in algae. If you're interested in finding out more, you can look at the Canadian government website under National Research Council Marine Research Station and the work that they're doing in Ketch Harbor in Nova Scotia. I will also provide a link to this webpage in our episode description for anyone who is interested. Thank you so much for letting us be a part of your day. If you're a Canadian, you know that as of the release of this episode, yesterday was National Truth and Reconciliation Day. So we have linked the 94 calls to action in our episode description, socials, and website. Thank you for listening to our first episode, and we hope this episode was... Right up your algae! Slay.